John uh, issued us with, well, issued me with a little list of things. Uh, one was the uh, title of today's sermon, Isaiah 40. So we're here in Isaiah 40 at John's request. Um, however, I'm going to preamble my way to Isaiah 40 and uh, get there at my own speed. So thank you, John, for the, for the topic. But it is very relevant. Um, now, last week, John made a really good point about the scripture. If I said to you, what's your favorite piece of scripture? How many would you start to think, oh, I'm like John. It's the one I'm reading now. That's my favorite part of scripture, the one I'm reading now. So obviously Isaiah 40 now is my favorite piece of scripture. But, but, we, we, we would be, um, we, we have to recognize that some scripture has a special place compared to others for, for various reasons. For example, uh, Malachi 4 verse 6. Why is Malachi 4 verse 6 a special piece of scripture? It's the last verse. It doesn't matter what it says. It's the last verse of the Old Testament. So it's special because it's there. And you can go all the way through bits of scripture and find things like that. Now, when we come to the prophecy of Isaiah, you have um, a lot of discussion amongst academics as to what it is. Okay, is it one book? Is it two books? Is it five books? Was it written by one person? Ten people? Nobody knows, okay? As far as I'm concerned, God gave it me as his word. Great. But I still have to look at its structure. God put it in a structure for a certain reason. And whatever academic uh, position you come from, Isaiah 40 is a very, very key point in the book of Isaiah, the, chap- uh, the, the prophecy of Isaiah. Up until Isaiah, Isaiah 1 to 39 is all text, and it's basically history. From Isaiah 40, verse 1 onwards, it changes, and it becomes poetry. From that moment on, in fact, the first part of Isaiah 40, which we'll look at in a minute, is actually a psalm. And you can see the poetic structure from there on. Not only does the the, the book change, the the content changes. It's like... It's, it's the biggest contrast between the Old and New Testament. So you can sort of see Isaiah 1 to 39 as Isaiah's first statement, Isaiah 40 onwards as his second statement. And you can see why people say it was written by two different... Yeah, won't go there. It, that's the big change. So I want to look very quickly. I'm going to give myself maybe six minutes to see if I can get through the whole of Isaiah 39. 1 to 39 in about six minutes. All right? Five to six. So you just to bear with me so we know what we're talking about. So we've got to see them as two different works, okay? Isaiah 1 to 39, work 1. Isaiah 40 onwards, work 2, okay? So what's Isaiah 1 to 39 about? Mm. It's a fantastic piece of literature. And like all great pieces of literature, it has more than one theme, right? If you look at anybody's favorite film here, I bet it's got more than one story running in it. Pick your favorite book. It's going to have more than one story running through it. But most great works have got one theme that holds it all together. And Isaiah 1 to 39 is exactly that. 
And I'm going to point to you now to three themes in 1 to 39. And if I can encourage you to go back, take an afternoon off, sit back and read 1 to 39 right the way through with these three themes in mind. You don't have to understand each of the chapters, but look at the big picture. So the first theme of of Isaiah 1 to 39 is that God is the God of all nations. Not just Israel. All nations. Which is why you have chapters on prophecy to Moab, prophecy to here, prophecy to somebody else. The content of that prophecy today to us is pretty irrelevant. It's two and a half thousand years ago, it's gone. What is relevant is that God claims to speak to that nation. As we spoke this morning about the the, the division between North and South Korea. God will speak to those nations. He is still God of the nations. So there's a claim in Isaiah 1 to 39 that this God, our God, the creator God, is the God of all nations and that, that authority is exercised in Isaiah 1 to 39. Interestingly enough, if you want to look at some of the other things, Israel's theology was moving at this time from polytheism to monotheism. Uh, you find at the start of Samuel uh, and, and, and Saul, they're still recognizing that other gods Um, Other nations have gods. By the time you get to the end of 39, they've ditched that. There's only one god. Other nations accept him or they reject him. And it's this moving to monotheism which comes over this time. And this is one of the claims of Isaiah 1 to 39. God is the God of all nations. The second theme that comes out in all the way through Isaiah 1 to 39, in little snippets here, little snippets there, little bits here, is that God is not only the God of the nations... He is the God of the individual. God speaks to Isaiah. God speaks to Hezekiah. God holds Uzziah to account. So we have the God of nations and the God of the individuals. And look at chapter 6, a very famous chapter. And God's invitation is that personal commitment to him is the way to remain safe. Personal commitment to him. Not to avoid trouble, not to avoid tragedy, not to avoid difficulty, as some people try and proclaim today. No, to remain safe. You're safe in him. God is the God of the individual. Those are the two big themes in Isaiah 1 to 39. Then the story. There's the story behind it against which these themes are set. Okay, like all great novels, all great, all great works, which is the invasion of the Assyrians. Starts at one, and you see it all the way, every chapter you read, one to 39, you've got to have this in the back of your mind, that the guy who wrote this was looking at the Assyrian armies bearing down on him all the way through. So, quick history now of how we get to one to 39. Okay, roughly... About two and a half thousand years BC, before Jesus, before Christ, you have the, the, the patriarchal time when Israel was under Abraham and the sort of uh, they were developing as tribes. Then they move to uh, Egypt to escape famine, and in Egypt they develop into a, a lot of people. We won't say a nation yet, but they were a huge lot of people. Then you have the Exodus led by Moses. Moses takes them out of uh, Egypt. They go into the desert. They have the 40 years in the desert. They cross the Jordan. They come into 
what was then Canaan, uh, Palestine, Israel, that part of the world that you, we all know around the Sea of Galilee. They cross, they cross the Jordan, they come into there. There's then a few hundred years while they develop, and round about the year 1000 BC, uh, they have a king, which is Saul, who is followed by David. So roughly 1000 BC is the Davidic kingdom, the one kingdom of Israel in that area. David is followed by Solomon and Solomon by Rehoboam. And you could basically say poor leadership under David as a king. He was a great resistance warrior, but he wasn't much of a king, to be honest. Followed by Solomon, who made a lot of very bad mistakes, led to Rehoboam, who led to tragedy, which leads to civil war. So just after 1,000, 1,100, well, say 900 um, BC, you have the, the division of the kingdom. And it divides into two kingdoms. And it divides pretty well along a line, north, uh, east-west line. The north kingdom um, follows one king. The southern kingdom follows another king. The north kingdom is ten tribes. The southern kingdom is two tribes. But number-wise, they are much the same. The north kingdom makes its headquarters in Samaria. The southern kingdom makes its headquarters in Jerusalem. As a cult or a culture, the southern kingdom follows the Davidic line, follows the line of David and remains loyal to Yahweh, to God. The northern kingdom has its headquarters in uh, Samaria and does not follow the Davidic line and neither does it make any attempt whatsoever to follow Yahweh, God. They follow whatever king they make allegiances with. And you have these two kingdoms. These two kingdoms stay in sort of uh, competition. Uh, they, they have wars between them, and sometimes they have alliances between them. But these two kingdoms are both there. They share a common culture, they share a common language, they tend to share the same script and writings they have, but they are two different people going in two different directions. One following the Davidic line, the other one following uh, whoever, whoever follows them. And roughly speaking... You can say the kings of the northern kingdom were either bad or terrible. The kings of the southern kingdom were bad or not too bad, or bad or better. Um, and there were some really godly kings of the southern kingdom. Mm, I don't think there's any godly kings of the northern kingdom. Protect me if, if, if there was one I've missed there, but I think they were all. I'm looking at, uh, at um, Sinjin there because he'll tell me. Um, but they, the northern kingdom is generally led by violent uh, kings who took power by violence. Uh, the way you became a king in the southern kingdom was by being the son of the previous king. The way you became a king of the northern kingdom was by killing the previous king. Um, that's generally what tended to happen. So those are the two atmospheres that are going on. And in this time, there are godly prophets sent to both kingdoms. There are good prophets sent to the north kingdoms, bad prophets sent to the south. This is the situation. Now, Israel is sitting where it does. To its bottom left, there is Egypt. I didn't bring maps, you all know this. Egypt was the, the great power of the Middle East. It was the power for thousands of years. So Egypt is like a constant power. It's there. Other powers come and go, come and go. Under Solomon, um, Egypt, um, Israel was quite a strong military power, but it, it gets stronger and weaker, stronger and weaker. Don't think it was a great military power. It wasn't. It was, but what it was doing, it sits on the crossroads 
of, of, of all culture and transportation between Egypt and the rest of the world. So it's a very key place because of where it sits. So round about um, 800 BC, you now had um, 200 odd years of the divided kingdom. A new, blo- a new guy arrives on the block. And a new power starts to assert itself. And this was Assyria. And Assyria, geographically, uh, w- would be where Syria and Iraq is today. That northern part where we just had, where we just had all those terrible wars with ISIS. Uh, that was basically Assyria. Assyria starts to get stronger and stronger and stronger and becomes the power, bar- power guy on the block. Um, becomes stronger than Egypt, becomes the guy that, 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 that everybody fears. Assyria starts to take over. And Assyria starts to, as it expands its territory, of course, it wants this little crossroads, Jerusalem. It wants, this is where it wants to go. And it starts coming down north bit by bit and eating into um, the northern kingdom. So by the time, say, 750 uh, years before, before Christ, you've now got quite a lot of the northern kingdom being nibbled into by Assyria. 722 is the date. At 722, Sargon II, after 20 years of nibbling away at the northern kingdom, besieges Samaria, which is the, the capital of the northern kingdom, and totally, absolutely wipes it out. Just gone. They didn't conquer cities in those days. After they conquered them, they leveled them. Um, completely took it away. And the whole of those people go into captivity in Assyria. Ten tribes. Of the original 12 tribes, ten were part of the northern kingdom. This is where you get the phrase, the lost tribes of Israel. They went into Assyria. Now, we, we tend to read this history through the Old Testament, through uh, Kings and Chronicles, and we tend to side all the time with the, um, with, with the, with the kingdoms of Israel, uh, uh, north and south. Had we been more logical at the time and looking outside, we may not have done so. We may actually have sided as much with the Assyrians. And interestingly enough, uh, we have all this history because in 1830, uh, they d- someone discovered uh, some t- tablets, some clay tablets in Nineveh, uh, which is called Sennacherib's Prism. And on there, you've got the whole history um, written from the side of the Assyrians. And it, it fits pretty clearly with what is actually in the scripture, which is, which is another way of proving what the scripture says. But we have to remember that what we read in the uh, Bible about the northern kingdom was honest, but even there, it's slightly watered down. So... The practice, the one practice that God will never tolerate is human sacrifice. And human sacrifice was happening inside of northern Israel at this time um, as they sacrificed these other gods to Moab and other else. And so had we been around at that time, we might have been quite pleased that the Assyrians came down and took away this nation that was practicing human sacrifice. The Assyrians were a bit like the Romans. Yes, when we look at it from our eyes, they were cruel, they were hard, they invented crucifixion, but they had a little message, which was, come over to our side, and it won't be too bad for you. Uh, Resist us, and we're going to kill you very unpleasantly. So many of the people in the northern kingdom who were taken into slavery in Assyria may have been happier than they were before. So there's all this going on 
It's not an easy situation. It's not necessarily a black and white situation. But the net result is that Samaria is conquered, completely taken away. Now, this now brings us to uh, 700 BC, uh, which is the start of Isaiah 40. Now, sitting in Jerusalem is a very godly king whose name is Hezekiah. And he has a very powerful prophet with him who's called Isaiah. And this is where you come to the end of, uh, or, or, or the end of chapter 30. We've got chapter 38, 37. Chapter 37. They are sitting there wondering what they're going to do. They are really little more than a city-state now. They're not a great army. They're not a great nation. They're a wealthy, very wealthy, probably luxurious city-state that is morally very compromised, although it has a godly king and a godly prophet. And they're looking up north, and just a few miles away, uh, if you go to the top of the Golan Heights, you can actually see Samaria from Israel. That's where um, Assyria have drawn their borders. And the message coming down from Assyria is very simple. Join us, or we're going to wipe you out in a very unpleasant way. Take your pick. And you're faced with the biggest armies that the world has seen. The Assyrian armies come down and they camp around Jerusalem. They, they besiege Jerusalem and start to slowly uh, starve Jerusalem. They, they can't even be fussed to fight. They're just going to starve Jerusalem out. And the leader of the Assyrian army uh, regularly comes down and stands in front of the walls of Jerusalem and shouts to the people inside there, why are you fighting? Give up. Come and join us voluntarily and we'll be nice to you. Uh, if you don't, we're going to be very, very unpleasant to you. Why listen to Hezekiah, who's telling you that God will deliver you? And, and the statements that you've got both, both in the Old Testament and similar statements made in the, um, the, the, the clay scrolls from, from um, Nineveh. Uh, our gods are stronger than your gods. These gods haven't protected you. Give up your God and come and follow us. So in Isaiah, in Isaiah 37, a scroll is sent into the city and Hezekiah takes the scroll and he lays it on the altar before God, and says, God, this is not an insult to us, it's not an insult to Jerusalem, it's an insult to you. What are you going to do about this insult to you? And he lays it on the altar before God. And this is the time when Isaiah makes these very famous, wonderful statements to um, Hezekiah, and he says, look around you, look up, uh, lift up your eyes. Can't you see that those who are for us, meaning God and God's powers, is greater than those who are against us? And so that's the situation. And Hezekiah and Isaiah have, have made this commitment spiritually towards God. This is in, this is in um, Isaiah 37. And outside, they are besieged by this huge, huge army. Now, such a foregone conclusion was this besieging of Jerusalem that Sennacherib didn't even bother to come down. He was the king of Assyria. He just sent his army and a few generals. This is one little city-state. This is not going to be a problem. They come out the next morning and they, they look at the besieging armies. And what they see is two types of Assyrians, dead or run away. That's all there was. Why? Well, we don't know. 
Um, the, the scripture just says the angel of the Lord went out and slew the Assyrians. Um, very interestingly, the prisms, the, the clay tablets written by the Assyrians at the time, record all the Assyrian battles. And they're full of, went to this city, conquered, besieged it and conquered it. Went to this city, besieged it, conquered it. Comes to Jerusalem, went to this city and came home. <laughs> it never says. They admitted they never, ever conquered Jerusalem. It's in their own writing. They went home. What happened? Uh, we don't know. There's lots of theories. Some people say it was a plague of cholera. Some people say this. Some people say that. The most likely historical answer is that there was a civil war going on at the time inside the Assyrian army, and they sat on each other and uh, w then went back home. Because 20 years later, Sennacherib uh, was killed by his own son in a takeover in Assyria, and that sort of saw the end of Assyria. But that's all, that's all as it may be. The point is, at that moment, when Hezekiah and Isaiah receive this scroll, they don't know what's going to happen. What they do know is their people are starving, their people are hungry, their people are talking about revolt, re rebelling. If the people raise, uh, open the door and let the Assyrians in, they're going to be settled back into their own houses, they're going to be, go back to their own places, and the Assyrians are going to reorganize the place, take the talented people back to Assyria, da, da, da. They're going to be fine. The people who are going to be killed are going to be Hezekiah and Isaiah, the leaders. You know, that's going to happen. That's where they are, and this is how God answers. It, it, it's, it's a miraculous deliverance. How God did it to me is immaterial. God did it is what matters. And Jerusalem is then saved, and the Assyrian army retreats. That's Isaiah 37. Isaiah 38 um, is Hezekiah becomes ill and thinks he's going to die, and God um, saves him. And then you come to Isaiah 39. Now, Isaiah 39 is quite interesting again. Um, you've got to look at where Hezekiah is. He, he's a human being. He's one of the greatest godliest kings of, of the time. But he's still a human being, like us. He has failings, like us. He's getting tired, like us. He's, the Assyrians have not been defeated. They've just gone away. Their border is still 20 miles up the road. He's looking for support. He's looking for help. Over the past years, Israel has often gone to Egypt. But it's not been a good idea. He doesn't want to go to Egypt. There is another new block, another new guy coming up on the block, right? If you go to the south of Assyria, to the east of um, Israel, where Iran now is, where Nineveh is, there was a group of people who were getting a little bit uh, strong with the Assyrians, called the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were refusing to pay money to the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were having a hard job getting it. And you begin to see a tussle between these two. If you want an ally, where are you going to go? So Hezekiah whips it off to um, Babylon. And he invites the, some leaders from Babylon to come to Jerusalem to show, probably to show, that he's worth saving. And he opens up his treasure houses and he shows all his wealth to the people of Babylon. And Isaiah says to him, 
your motive, well, it basically says your motive may be one thing, but do you know what you've done? You're basically looking again to men to support you rather than God. The result is these Babylonians to whom you have shown all your wealth, they are going to come and take it. And you are going to lose everything to the Babylonians. And Hezekiah says to Isaiah, when will this happen? And Isaiah says, don't worry, it won't happen in your life, it'll happen in your grandkids' lives. And Hezekiah says, thank you. Um, I'm glad it didn't happen in my life. Um, and that's recorded as the last line of Isaiah, and it wasn't meant as a compliment to Hezekiah. It just shows that we all get tired, we all get worn out. But let's look at that situation at the end of Isaiah 39, the last line there. What you've got is a kingdom that has just escaped, the northern kingdom taken into captivity. The southern kingdom, under a promise of God that it will be taken into captivity. Pretty desperate position to be in. And Isaiah and Hezekiah are there with this message. It's impossible. What do we do? Why would God let um, Babylon take the, the southern kingdom? Well, as I said, that Isaiah was a godly person. Hezekiah was a godly person. But in the, the nation, there was a lot of ungodliness going on. Eighty years later, Daniel was taken into captivity, into the Babylon. Babylonia. Just over 120 years later, Jerusalem was uh, completely wiped out by Babylon, completely destroyed. One of the reasons given in the scripture for this is, again, uh, the, 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 when I say godlessness of the, the people, it, it's beyond that. Um, at least the northern kingdom kept their idolatry and their human sacrifice to themselves the southern kingdom had started to commit child human sacrifice in the temple of God, in Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem. Had we been there at the time, we may well have sided with the Babylonians. But they came along and Israel is wiped out. I want you now to ask yourself a question. How would you feel at the end of chapter 39 your, your sister kingdom, despite its godlessness, whatever else, has been completely wiped out. Gone. Ten tribes taken into captivity, never seen again. Here is a promise from God to say, and the same's going to happen to you. Through the Babylonians. Where is hope? What is the future? That's where you get to at the end of Isaiah 39. No hope, no future. This is where it is. Now, I said that Isaiah 39 is also about a personal God. So it might be good for us just to ask ourselves a few questions. What about our lives? And which one of us can, can look back on our life and say, there hasn't been some mistakes, some errors, some difficulties, like Hezekiah is having to do? And where are we going? What's going to happen to us? Where's the future? This is Isaiah 39. Just to put a little spin on it from the side, this time of the year, 
Um, I suspect there's a lot of football clubs uh, with their managers saying much the same to them. You know, um, Coventry is, is in one position. I mean, you, you, you've got to try harder, guys. If you're going to make this last bit, you've got to put more effort in. You've got to change what you're doing. And you can see the pressure. What message would you expect from God now in Isaiah 40, verse 1, to these people? What, how would you think God would respond to us? Isaiah 41, if you've got the Bible, please open it and try and follow it. Um, it's a poem. Uh, it's not written as a history lesson. It's simply a poem. Um, and I'm, I'm going to, hopefully... Um, have it read to us, um, but by somebody who can read it a lot better than I can. If you've got it, follow it. We'll stop there. Um, it's sufficient to say that th- those of you <laughs> who know, know these scriptures know, know that the Gospels tend to start here. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, which is John the Baptist. 
And John the Baptist is taking this and pointing us back to the, the bit that John brought last week about the highway in the desert for our God. And comfort ye. Why? Why? What is the grounds for hope and comfort? There's only one. It's the grace of God. There is no other grounds. Israel has nowhere else to go now but a personal revelation of a God of grace. There is no, excuse me, nowhere else to go from Isaiah 39 onwards. Isaiah 40 onwards is about the personal revelation of a personal God. Complete change. And that's how the Gospels start. That was their situation. Now, some of us here, you know, we're going through difficult times. Lift your hand up if you're in a worse situation than they were. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, where do they go from here? Here is the answer. Turn to God. And this is God's word, comfort ye. you. You just can't say it. You can sing it, but you can't say it. That's the personal touch that God is offering. Comfort ye, my people. Saith your God. There's some... Uh, Tensions in some of the translations there. The, the bit that says, um, your warfare is accomplished, that tends to in English come across to imply that um, you've had to do so much warfare before. It doesn't mean that at all. It, basically, warfare can be translated difficulty. Your difficulties are over. But it's said in a very strong, powerful way. It's nothing you earn. The whole thing is based upon purely God's grace. John the Baptist picks it up. The gospel writers pick it up. Um, it focuses on to the New Testament. What is the highway for our God? This is the, this is the coming of Jesus. It's the coming of Jesus. And I, if I had time, I'd play the next bit, which is every valley should be exalted. Where are these valleys? Whose are these valleys? It's not a physical highway. John asked last week, where is this highway? We are the highway. And it is our valleys that need to be lifted up. It is our high places that need to be made low. It's our crooked ways that should be made straight. And this is God's gift, his honest, his grace that he gives us. And this is the, this is the, the tension that, that of, of, of the dramatic uh, side of Isaiah 40. You come to Isaiah 39, and then you move straight into this poetry. And I'm pretty sure they would have sung it, um, maybe not to Handel's Messiah, but they, it, it was such a, a change. Comfort ye, my people. Yeah, you've just been wiped out. Your friends have been wiped out. You're going to be wiped out again um, because of the sin amongst you. How do you go forward? You put, your trust, you put your trust in God. Dead simple, such a message. Put your trust in God. Let's just finish by reading Isaiah 40, 28 to 31. And again, this is one of these um, poetic couplets that if you look, every statement is repeated again as a sort of poetic um, couplet to help us to make the point. This is the end of of 40. It's after the comfort you bit. Hast thou, I'm in King James because that's the, uh, well, I'm in King James. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is he weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them who have no might, he increaseth strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord 
shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not be faint. Why? Because of God's grace and our understanding and dependence upon that. Don't look to the horses of Egypt. Look to the grace of God. Father, we, we, we thank you for the beauty of your scriptures. We thank you that they speak to nations and they speak to us as individuals. Challenge us, lead us, bring us to a place of finding comfort in you. Amen.